Hello, I'm Lily Hyam. And I'm Gordon Johnston. Welcome to the Last Question Podcast, a production of DataFest, the ongoing series of data and AI innovation events run by the Data Lab, Scotland's innovation centre for data and artificial intelligence, hosted out of the University of Edinburgh. Today we're chatting to Professor Jim Al-Khalidi, theoretical physicist, broadcaster, science communicator and winner of the Stephen Hawking Medal. You may have heard Jim on Radio 4 presenting The Life Scientific, watched his BAFTA-winning TV show Chemistry, A Volatile History, or maybe you saw him at DataFest's Data Summit back on the 4th of November 2022. Jim's talk at Data Summit was incredible, uh, outrageously thought-provoking and incredibly accessible. He's just a wonderful, wonderful speaker, and we really hope to have him back to another DataFest event in the future. And don't forget that Jim is exactly the kind of person that you can expect to find at one of our events. So keep an eye on our social media channels uh, for all the information about what we're doing next. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at DataFest underscore. So, Lily, what does a quantum physicist order in a bar? Just a small one. A martini. A double punchline. Triple now. The silence is in in itself a punchline. So... (laughs) So, so today, also, you stole my punchline. <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to say I don't know. Oh. And then I was going to say. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Not only did I steal your punchline, I also <laughs> did three that I just made up. Fantastic. It's the Lily Show. <laughs> <laughs> today we're talking to Jim about quantum biology. Uh, it's a cutting-edge application of quantum mechanics, uh, which is being applied to biological processes such as uh, photosynthesis and mutation. There's a great book about it you can read uh, by Jim called Life on the Edge, uh, if you want to really dive into the topic. But it really, really is fascinating. And obviously, we're delighted to be talking to Jim today. So let's jump right over on into the interview. For millennia, humans have been inspired by nature when developing new technologies, whether it's Velcro modelled on burrs, copying the aerodynamics of birds for aircraft and trains, or tiny drones that look like insects. We've always looked to nature for perfect form. You mention in your book that plants may use quantum coherence, sending lumps of energy in many directions at once, to calculate the most efficient route for sunlight to get to their photosynthetic cells. Do you think that there are lessons to be learned here about how quantum biology might help to improve renewable energy collection and storage, in particular solar energy? Yeah, I think, I mean, broadly, uh, the, the usual sort of philosophy is, look, you know, nature's had three and a half billion years to perfect uh, the, the, the mechanism machinery of life. And if nature can find a shortcut or a more efficient way of doing something, it'll have found it by now. And that includes the the weird quantum world. So, you know, if there is an advantage, if quantum mechanics somehow gives life a helping hand, whether it's in something like photosynthesis or various other mechanisms inside living systems, then that's likely to be a useful thing for us to know about. So, you know, we are trying to develop solar cells. We're trying to capture the, the sunlight and turn it into electrical energy. Well, this is, that's what plants and bacteria have done for billions of years. And so if they can do something more efficiently using the trickery of the quantum world, 
we need to know about it. It may end up being nothing. It may end up not being useful, but it's too important to ignore because, you know, the lessons from from how life and evolution has worked, I think are ones that we have constantly found inspiration from. And as, as you mentioned in the question, in developing technologies that, that rely on similar sort of me- mechanisms. I do wonder if um, this new, quite new idea of um, photosynthesis using quantum biology is actually quite key for us being able to develop these technologies. Because if we had tried to mimic photosynthesis before, we know about this, we might have just made a machine that doesn't really work because we're missing that key part, which is the quantum effect. Yes, it's, it's, it's possible. I mean, I, I don't want to um, sort of plug it too or shout about it too loudly. You know, it's, it, it, there are two reasons. One is that actually the, the, the role that quantum mechanics plays in, in photosynthesis is still being debated. There are whole communities of scientists, physicists, chemists, biologists, computer scientists, and so on, who are arguing on one side saying quantum mechanics is crucial and this idea of quantum coherence, you know, the, the, the lump of energy, the photon of sunlight that's captured follows multiple paths simultaneously, like the famous quantum mechanics two-slit experiment. You know, the, the weirdness is manifest here inside the living cell uh, and that photosynthesis wouldn't work without quantum mechanics. Then you have another community saying, no, there's no quantum mechanics. There's no evidence for it. It's all just atoms vibrating and transferring that vibrational energy. Everything's very sort of mundane and boring. Uh, So we don't know, but it's such an important question we need to know the answer to. Uh, And the other issue is that this transfer of the photon from the chlorophyll that captures it, the sunlight, down to the reaction center is really just the first step in photosynthesis. Anyone who studied biology and biochemistry and, and, and the whole, you know, machinery of photosynthesis will realize it's a very complicated multi-step process. So just because, you know, we found a, a way of making this first stage more efficient isn't going to solve our problems of developing solar cells. But as with all these new technologies, there are lots of problems to solve, lots of challenges. And any one of them, if we can make do it better, is going to give us an advantage. Mm-hmm. We've spoken to quite a few of the people on the podcast uh, who are at the cutting edge of these new sort of theories and ideas. And um, there's always that risk that something uh, emerges like a new technology and it sounds amazing and it's like really quite flashy and trendy and everybody has these massive expectations of it. And then everybody's super disappointed when it's either decades away or it doesn't immediately work. Uh, we spoke to a, yeah, we spoke to a nanotechnologist about how it was so trendy like in the late sort of well, kind of early 2000s and then totally dropped off and everyone said, well, where's the grey goo? You know, where's my, you know, suit that changes colour? It doesn't happen immediately. <laughs> Invisibility <laughs> cloaks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. If you don't get that straight away, everyone's like, oh, pff, nanotechnology, nonsense. <laughs> I wonder if that would then also, like, make the funding dry up because people, their disappointments, they're not putting money to it anymore. Well, I think that's an important point. You know, scientists and technologists and engineers are partly to blame here because, you know, we try and oversell and overpromise what's, that our science is what technology is going to lead to because we want to get funding. And so we make it all very, very sexy uh, and, and, and promise, you know, it's going to solve cancer, it's going to you know, answer the, the, the mystery of life and so on. Um, we sort of know it's not going to, but we need to oversell it in order to secure research income. And, and sadly, that's that's a reality of life. <laughs> mm. I also imagine it can be because you're just really excited about your your own field and so you hype it up in your own head because it's you're passionate about it do you ever feel like you have to rein that back when you're telling people about it 
Yes, I think that's that's very true. And uh, and usually when you talk within a very specialist field, you tend to be much more sort of level headed and, and, and you know, we've got to take things one step at a time. But when it comes to writing a popular article or talking to a journalist or or even talking to your funders or your or your your employers, your bosses, then you will hype it up because you need to sort of big yourself up in, in a way. As I say, that's that's probably more human nature than bad science. <laughs> And actually, on the, the topic of funding research, how is um, how do you research these quantum biology effects, such as the photosynthesis? Like, what's the what are some of the methods you do? Well, um, on the one hand, you've got experimental work, uh, and so um, molecular biologists, of so the colleagues of mine at Surrey that I work with, um, grow, for example, um, E. coli bacteria in in in, in a dish. Uh, and they can get their bits of their DNA and use this, you know, method PCR, polymerized chain reactions to sort of multiply the DNA. And they can deliberately put in things like mutations uh, and see uh, what effect quantum mechanisms have in, in creating these mutations in, 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 in uh, bacteria. Um, you 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 can take some of these biomolecules and zap them with la pulses of laser light and excite them and then watch how they give off that light and the signature of the way they give off their, their the energy after you excited them tells you something about their quantum states so you can indirectly you can learn about these these uh, processes inside living cells but of course ultimately if if quantum mechanics is taking place inside a living cell it's really hard uh, a physicist likes to do things under very controlled conditions. I want a photon bouncing off a mirror in my laboratory. I want to do it at zero degrees temperature in a vacuum with no, sh no, you know, complete shielding. So there's no vibration outside. How do you do that inside a living cell when you've got thousands of chemical reactions going on? And it's just such a noisy, busy, messy place. How do you isolate those delicate quantum effects? That's a challenge. Of course, the other side is the stuff that I do, which is the theoretical work. So this is theoretical physics, computational chemistry. We're developing mathematical models that predict how important these effects are. But they only really hold water if you can compare them up against observable experimental results. That's the challenge. Actually, the topic of mutations brings us on to our next question. It does. So what a neat little segue. Love it when that happens. <laughs> Uh, I was watching one of your seminars uh, about the research into quantum mechanical effects on the behavior of the molecules that make up DNA. Uh, and it's really interesting that the protons and the hydrogen bonds holding together the strands could tunnel from one side to another, causing instability and maybe leading to mutations. Uh, could you tell us what this means for our understanding of genetics and evolution? Yes, it could be absolutely vitally important. Um, uh, again, this is a collaboration between theoretical physicists and, and quantum computational chemists. Uh, it's been known since Crick and Watson, who first discovered the double helix structure in the 50s, that these hydrogen bonds, if, if you think of the DNA double helix as a twisted ladder, the, the rungs of the ladder are these hydrogen bonds that hold the strands together. And a proton is essentially a hydrogen atom um, that, that is the glue that holds them together. And it can jump from one side to the other. It may jump by being bumped by, say, a water molecule nearby, or it could quantum tunnel, the idea that something passes through an, an impenetrable um, energy field, energy barrier. If it does, it ends up in the wrong site. Then as those strands split 
when when the, the, an enzyme sort of unzips them to make multiple copies of them in the process of replication, that proton might find itself on the wrong side. And if it does, that could lead to a mutation when you start to make copies of this original DNA, these, the two single strands of DNA. So the question is, does quantum tunneling play a role in mutations? Now, we've discovered that it's a hugely complicated problem because, you know, the the way the proton moves depends on where the strands are and how they separate and what their environment is like. Um, and this is something we've got researchers working on and we're publishing papers on this, you know, as as, as I speak. Um, but of course, the ultimate um, prize would be if quantum mechanics plays a role in mutations, can we somehow control mutations? We know mutations take place for all sorts of reason, reasons, ionizing radiation, just copying mistakes and so on. But if quantum mechanics plays a role, is that something we can control? Of course, this all will lead to a tabloid headline like quantum physics um, cures cancer. <laughs> and and that's that's the, the, the hype that we want to make sure we don't drift into. Uh, but it's nevertheless, it's such an important issue. You know, it's really exciting research that's happening now. I suppose if we do find that we can control it, there's still the issue of maybe it's still easier to use ionizing radiation to to cause mutations and then you might have found this really interesting new technology but it's just not as easy as using ionizing radiation or it's, or it's in the noise it may be important but ionizing radiation just trumps it every time and you know but of course you can't control ionizing radiation you can't control what mutation is going to take place mm. here it may be that we can control if the proton jumps from one side to the other, we can, you know, just the same way that people use techniques like CRISPR, where you can, you know, do gene editing and 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 move these nucleotides, these bases in DNA, A, T, C, and G, the four letters that make up the alphabet of life. Uh, you know, it maybe we can have much more careful control over what's happening at a molecular level than simply having ionizing radiation from the atmosphere coming in and just, you know. Smash, smashing into DNA like you know, like some sort of missile. <laughs> you mentioned that cells are a really noisy, complicated place. Um, does the possibility of decoherence in an open environment like that cause problems in the modeling of the proton tunneling uh, in DNA? Uh, well, I mean, naively you'd say yes. How could quantum mechanics ever survive inside a, 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 you know, a hot, noisy environment like the cell where decoherence, this the, the, the leaking away of quantum effects very, very quickly? That surely would be much quicker than any biological timescale for it to be useful. That's what really interests me. In fact, I've just I've started giving a series of lectures on decoherence theory at Surrey. Um, I, I sort of wanted to learn more about it myself. I've offered it to give uh, as a course of lectures so I can learn it. Suddenly, I've got, you know, 50, 60, 70 people all signed up, all, all the way from professors down to PhD students. The, the lovely thing about this is that it may be that life has um, tweaked the dial so that a decoherence doesn't take place so quickly. Quantum coherence lasts for much longer because life is able to resonate with it, to, to maintain quantum coherence for a lot longer. So we're absolutely in our models we build in, these are called open quantum systems. So that your quantum system, your proton, knows about the surrounding environment. And it knows that the surrounding environment is going to either destroy coherence or bash into it or you know, do all sorts of messy things. But underneath that mess, that white noise, there might be some very subtle effects 
that are acting to keep quantum effects lasting for longer. And that's that's my hope. I mean, just because that's my hope doesn't mean it's good science. That's my hope is that life has evolved this ability to keep decoherence away for longer than we might expect. Mm. When you think of, uh, talk about something knowing the system or knowing its environment, what do you mean by the term know? I've, I've always wanted to ask this question, actually, because it's, it's a useful term to use to understand what was being spoken about. But then when you look at the word, it's like, does the thing itself, what is knowledge if it's stored? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, more, it's safer to use the term information. Right. So, so a quantum system, when it decoheres, what is actually happening is that it's becoming quantum entangled with its surroundings. Another way of looking at that is saying the surroundings is uh, 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 the environment is gaining information about the quantum system. So, an environment isn't you know a sentient thing; it could just be you know air <laughs> or, or water or something. But built in it is, is encoded in it is information about the quantum system. In that sense, we say it's knowing. And us opening the cat, the box with Schrodinger's cat inside that's dead and alive, that's us knowing. But you might as well just think of us as an extension of this outside environment that's causing decoherence of the quantum state. Mm. So knowing is just like a storage of information. A storage of, absolutely. Yeah, okay, cool. Decoherence is something that comes up, uh, has come up a few times in our podcast. We talked to um, Elham Kashefi, quantum computing professor, and she was talking about how um, when you're designing a computer, you need to choose how many qubits you want to put towards computation and how many you want to reserve for um, error uh, reduction. Um, so it seems like if you, if people can solve or improve this decoherence issue, our ability to put more qubits into computing power would change quantum cu- computing so much that we might reach a new era of computing possibilities. Mm, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the the motivation for doing a lot of this work. You know, while it's interesting to see if quantum mechanics plays a role in life, the other, the flip side is what technologies can we develop? And quantum computing is top of that list. And, and certainly understanding the nature of enta- quantum entanglement and decoherence is vital if we're going to build a, a, quant- a working quantum computer that is more than just like a dozen qubits. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's not an easy subject. Uh, understanding, you know, for my, for my interest, it's more to do with the foundations of quantum mechanics, the theory, you know, what does it all mean? What is the, the measurement problem? And how do you get this transition from the quantum to the classical world? Um, but someone working in quantum computing, they want, practical knowledge of how to design a device a physical device where decoherence doesn't take place too quickly uh they want it they want it to be clever enough to to carry all these quantum entangled calculations uh but they also want to be able to input and output the information so that we in outside in the classical world can make sense of it Uh, and it's still it's still a challenge Jim's books, The Joy of Science, Towards a Rational Life, and Life on the Edge, The Coming Age of Quantum Biology, are out now and available in all good bookshops. And Quantum. Um, We read that book in preparation for Elham Kashefi's podcast, um, so that we knew a little bit about quantum mechanics field before talking to a quantum computing professor. I thought that was a good idea. And the book was really good. It was um, easy to understand, very informative. Yeah, very accessible. And Mm. also just a little bit, another good quantum joke there. Thank you.
We can't. needed more jokes. Exactly, we, we can't switch it off. So with all that being said, I think it's time for some wild speculation. This is the part of the show where we ask our guests to go beyond the scope of their research or expertise and engage in some wild speculation about their field. Jim, how do you think quantum biology will change the way we understand the origins of life? It may be profound. It may lead nowhere. There are certainly colleagues of mine, there's a molecular geneticist at Surrey, John Joe McFadden, with whom I've written a popular science book on quantum biology. There's the theoretical physicist Paul Davies uh, in, in Arizona and others who argue that life for life to have emerged spontaneously, for chemistry to have become biology, you know, to, the very first replicator may not be as mundane as some people talk. There needed to be some leap. You know, the, um, uh, there's this, this is famous uh, uh, metaphor of the, the, the hurricane blowing through a junkyard and, and reconstituting a jumbo jet just by chance. What's the chances of that happening? Well, people who look at the origins of life questions say, well, you wouldn't make a jumbo jet. You'd, you'd, you'd very slowly make components and they gradually come together. But it still seems like a, high, a highly improbable thing to have happened. And yet we know certainly here on Earth, we don't know of life anywhere else. It seemed to have happened very quickly soon after the Earth became, uh, it became possible for life to exist on Earth. So, so maybe it's not that difficult. Maybe quantum mechanics plays a role there. Maybe quantum mechanics allowed those early molecules to sift through all possible arrangements in some sort of quantum superposition that made it much more likely that we'd hit upon the right arrangement of, of amino acids than just sheer chance, you know, or Darwin's pond and you know, a spoon stirring up, you know, electrolytes, chemicals and water and sunlight. So maybe quantum mechanics is the uh, ultimate reason why life exists. Or maybe that is just another one of those wild speculations like, you know, quantum mechanics is the origin of consciousness, uh, which, you know, physicists like me tend to really shy away from because they, they start to border on sort of woo-woo pseudoscience. And that's always a, a concern. It does get people excited about the field, though, doesn't it? They see <laughs> yes. that as a headline in a magazine. They're like, well, I've got to read this book about quantum mechanics now because it could describe why I am conscious. <laughs> Ab absolutely. But then they come back to me and say, oh, so now I know why twins are tele telepathic. It's quantum entanglement. So I'm, oh, no. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> this is your fault, Jim. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> what do you say to people when they when they say things like that? Do you um, keep speculative or are you sceptical immediately? I, 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 I try and sort of put them down gently. I'll, I'll, I'll say, no, I don't think that is, you know, quantum mechanics is mysterious, but let's not use the fact that it's counterintuitive to explain everything we don't understand. And I'm, you know, I'm particularly sensitive to things like, you know, um, psychic powers or homeopathy or anything like that, which is just nonsense, right? And, and, and to claim quantum mechanics as an explanation for it is an insult to quantum mechanics and, and practitioners of quantum mechanics like me. So I, I tend not to uh, um, pull my punches, should we say. <laughs> yeah, I think people like it as an explanation if they have this thing, maybe that they want to sell, and but they need to just explain how it works so people believe in it. And then you can just throw in terms like, oh, the quantum effect make it work and then people hear a science term and they think oh it must be scientific <laughs> yeah exactly and that's that's a big concern big concern 
So finally, on to the last question. Each episode we pose our listeners a question and invite people from around the world to offer their thoughts. We'll read the most interesting ones out on a future episode. Our question this week is, what is your favourite hypothesis for the origin of life? Whether that's uh, scientific, religious, folkloric, or just uh, your own wild ideas. So that's it from us today. We'll be back next time with more insight, innovation, and wild speculation. Feel free to drop us an email to say hello, suggest a topic, or make corrections, or you know, suggest somebody we should speak to. The email address is datafest at thedatalab.com, or you can find us on Twitter at datafest underscore. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another episode of The Last Question.